0: You're listening to Bede, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920-1950. to Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.
1: The preface to Zwingli's 67 articles, written in 1523, states, I, Ulrich Zwingli, confess that I have preached in the worthy city of Zurich these 67 articles or opinions on the basis of Scripture which is called Theonoustos, that is, inspired by God. I offer to defend and vindicate these articles with Scripture, but if I have not understood Scripture correctly, I am ready to be corrected, but only from the same Scripture. End quote. Now you hear in Zwingli's statement, his functional doctrine of sola scriptura. If he were to be moved from his 67 articles, it would be Scripture alone that would do it. Now, in standing on scripture alone, Zwingli, of course, was merely imitating Martin Luther, who, in April 1521, stood before the emperor at the Diet of Worms and gave this answer to the question of whether or not he wished to renounce any of his writings. Quote, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, neither horned nor toothed, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason for i do not trust either in the pope or in councils alone since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves i am bound by the scriptures i have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of god i cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience i cannot do otherwise here i stand may god help me Amen. Now, most of you may know that subsequent to this, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V declared Luther an outlaw and a heretic. The magisterial reformers, to quote David Wells, had the courage to be Protestant and stand on Scripture alone as the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That, of course, is from the Baptist Confession of Faith 1689, Article 1, Section 1. The question behind this episode of Bede is, do we have similar courage today? Well, to help us answer this question in the affirmative, we want to continue our study of the 1689 Baptist Confession with a focus on Article 1, titled, On the Holy Scriptures. But before we dive into it, perhaps it will be helpful to consider part of the background to the 1689, namely the Roman Catholic Council of Trent. Now, this, known as the Counter-Reformation, took place from 1545 to 1563 and consisted of 25 sessions. The fourth session took up Scripture. Now, Michael, in terms of authority, what did the Council decree, which is so important to our understanding, of course, of the great Reformed Confessions?
2: Yes, the... The Council, as you indicated, is part of the response to the Reformation. So, 20 years after that, those two incidents you mentioned with Zwingli uh, writing that text and then Luther before the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the Roman Church responds with this lengthy uh, conciliar uh, me- series of meetings, which we call uh, the Council of Trent. And um, what happens at the Reformation is that two opinions about the relationship of Scripture and tradition which had been circulating through the Middle Ages um, the within the same body of churches, namely what we call the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Um, one opinion being that the final authority in the Christian life is Scripture. That, that was a view that was uh, clearly held by a number of figures, John Wycliffe, for example, um, Thomas Bradwardine, uh, Jacques Lefebvre d'Etaples <clears throat> within the uh, Roman Church. And then the other, which was beginning to equate uh, scripture and tradition, um, a view that goes back probably to the late, late antiquity, uh, when somebody like uh, Basil of Caesarea in his otherwise fabulous book on the deity of the Holy Spirit at the very end turns to tradition, unwritten traditions, uh, in which he argues that these unwritten traditions um, have been acknowledged as apostolic, as it were, in authority. And therefore, just as we have um, embraced those and wouldn't question some of those, for instance, praying to the East. Praying towards the east, etc. Um, he makes his defense of the deity, of the spirit. Um, <clears throat> so it's been. There's, there's a long history of appeal to scripture and tradition, but there was no, there was no um, formal uh, statement that if anybody argues from scripture alone, let him be anathema. But the Council of Trent does make that. The Council of Trent affirms that. Uh, the voice of God through church councils and through the church councils and the papacy. uh, This is not affirming the infallibility of the Pope, uh, which doesn't come until 1870, but basically is arguing for the traditions that have developed in the medieval church. uh, They have equal authority with Holy Scripture. And uh, as I said, those two those two views up until the Reformation both existed side by side, and then because of the affirmation of Luther and Zwingli and others, that their lives were going to be determined first and foremost by scripture, the scripture scripture had the final authority, not scripture and tradition, because tradition and councils uh, and obviously popes could err um, the Roman church
1: as Luther made so clear, right with i mean what bravery yep to declare that right before uh
2: the emperor himself uh, yep exactly so the the council then in some ways i you know I, I sometimes say that roman catholicism as we know it today didn't exist before the reformation um it's the reformation that crystallizes the councils crystallizes the roman church's condemnation of salvation by uh, grace alone, or self justification by faith alone, um, and crystallizes that long tradition as the only right tradition, that scripture and tradition are legit, both legitimate equal sources in determining doctrine and praxis. It's
1: almost like the, the Reformers forced mm-hmm. Rome's hand in yeah. a way, right? So yeah. that's why we call it the Counter-Reformation. Yeah. But you're right. Here we were at the Council of Trent watching them codify, you know, put put in decrees. I mean, they all come in the form of decrees. I mean, for example, in, in 1546, I've got it right in front of me, what you're saying so clearly, Michael, but to just hear these words so clearly from the Council of Trent, here we are in April 1546, and this decree concerning the canonical scriptures. Now, I won't read the whole thing, but to your very point, here's some of the exact language. It says, Following then the examples of the Orthodox fathers, it receives and venerates with a feeling of piety and reverence all the books, both of the Old and New Testaments, since one God is the author of both. And here it is. Also the traditions, whether they relate to faith or to morals, as having been dictated either orally by Christ or by the Holy Ghost and preserved in the Catholic Church in unbroken succession. So you're exactly right. Here they are putting it in writing in response to bold statements like Zwingli and Luther and, of course, the confessions that were coming out of the Reformed tradition there. Yeah, so prior
2: uh, to this, I mean, let's say, you know, you go back to somebody like Jacques Lefebvre d'etapes, who dies around 15, the mid-15 teens. I mean, he did not hold that. He held to the supreme authority of Scripture. And yet he was a court bishop um a court preacher rather to the king of france um he could occupy that position without any problems uh nobody questioned his um orthodoxy per se and yet he he basically held the view of the reformers and so there is a real sense then in which you know people talk about you know the roman catholic church uh having um, um antiquity on its side whereas protestants are johnny come lately is because we, we emerged at the, um, in the 15th, 16th century. But the same is true of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, as it comes to codify uh, critical positions, uh, like the worship of invocation and worship of the saints, like uh, the justification by faith and works, like uh, scripture and tradition as being equal authorities, uh, these the, you did not have to hold these views. Uh, prior to the Reformation
1: in fact you can correct me if I'm wrong here Michael you're the expert on Augustine but Augustine subscribed to Sola Scriptura as we oh understood. yeah very very
2: very definitely yeah
1: that- and Chrysostom I think we could add Chrysostom there yep. so yeah very um, I mean, the, the,
2: the the view that tradition I mean Basil enunciates it but it's a very it's an odd view of Basil because he doesn't really kind of develop it anywhere else but you really don't get that sort of argument developing at length until probably, you know, the Synod of Whitby would be a good example in 664, where um, tradition is placed on a level with scripture.
1: And as you said earlier, Michael, and here one last excerpt from this decree concerning the canonical scriptures in 1546, the Council of Trent, and you'd said it earlier, uh, here it is. Uh, anyone knowingly and deliberately who rejects the aforesaid traditions, there it is, let him be anathema. So, a divine curse beyond the one who doesn't see tradition uh, elevated to that same role of authority as Scripture. So, it's not ambiguous. <laughs> and that's really the context of, of what we're looking at tonight. I mean, we're looking at the, uh, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, a very clear article. In ten sections on Holy Scripture, so appropriately titled on the Holy Scriptures, but very much uh, other than what we read in the Council of Trent and from decrees like like we've just looked at and you 've described, so I, I thought, Michael, we could we could walk through <clears throat> this. I mean yep. here we are yep um, we're going to spend a, a number of episodes uh, looking at the actual body of divinity that is in this. This this wonderful confession, and tonight on Holy Scripture. So what what I thought I'd do is uh, walk us through it, but pause so you can comment. We can both comment on these. Uh, our listeners right now are thinking, how are they going to get through ten sections tonight? We will practice what Calvin calls lucid brevity tonight, <laughs> right? We will be in the uh, you know the the vein of the great reformer himself and practice lucid brevity. Uh, but let me just, the overview, I love the, tell me if you agree, when I look at this Article 1, I, I think the framers, again, it's echoing in so many ways the Westminster Confession of Faith was written earlier. But you really have bookends, I think, uh, of the sufficiency of Scripture. Our article 1, Section 1, and then Section 10 is really, you have these bookends saying that Scripture alone, authoritative, sufficient, uh, but let's look at the, the first section uh, of Article 1. I will read part of this at least. I think if I was going to put uh, one word, banner, if, if, you, if you will, over this, I would say necessity. The scriptures are necessary. But here's how it opens. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith and obedience. Now although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. So already we're seeing that there's something uniquely um, qualitatively different about what we would call special revelation, so the scriptures. Uh, It goes on, uh, section one does. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners, so in many times, many ways, to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh, here it is, the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So a very clear statement about the necessity and completeness, really, of God's revelation.
2: Yeah, that, it's it's a fascinating statement, that beginning one, because um, as you mentioned, the uh, Second London Confession, 1689 Confession, as is popularly known, is built uh, on the um, Westminster Confession of 1646, and uh, also the Savoy Declaration of 1658, which was a Congregationalist document. But the first clause, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, is actually not found in the Westminster Confession, nor is it the right Roy declaration and uh i think here you have a pointer to two things one is to the uh historical circumstances because uh the 1646 confession was framed before the emergence of particularly the people known as the quakers who exalted the experience of the spirit and the indwelling of the spirit over above the spirit's word and that certainly i i've always understood this first sentence as a response to the quakers and uh secondly it is such a help for us today because it affirms very very clearly uh the infallibility of the word of god which is a very strong word um unable
1: to err, just for exactly our listeners, right it's unable exactly. to exactly
2: it, it mm. doesn't mean it didn't it it is unable to err. and That's right. in the In the in the course of the 20th century, somehow, uh, inerrant became the stronger of the two statements, and infallible had the idea that it won't lead you astray. But the word historically has a much stronger meaning. Um, So the the New York Times, I don't know. Well, I read the West, the uh, the Wall Street Journal. So I I I could pick up the Wall Street Journal today. The front page might be inerrant, but it's not infallible.
1: That's right. Yep.
2: So that first statement, then, is a very, very precious statement in my mind. Uh, one of our uh, co- former colleagues, Tom Nettles, in his uh, Baptist in the Bible, um, has a fabulous uh, overview. He kind of does an exegesis of this text, takes each of the words only, uh, sufficient, certain, infallible, uh, et cetera, and kind of uh, para- exegetes them. And it really is a very rich statement about the authority of scripture.
1: And of course, all of this, Michael, is is built on what Zwingli pointed us to earlier, theonustos, yep. uh God breathed, in other words, the doctrine of inspiration. So when we say infallible, unable to err, that's built on the doctrine of inspiration. It follows necessarily, if it is the outbreed breath of God, it by definition is unable to err. It's God's word. So that can often sound like a I mean in one ear, out the other, we just God's word, God's word. But wait a minute, step back. This is a product of God's spirit. Therefore, to affirm its infallibility, to me isn't really a stretch. If you struggle with that, you probably need to Mm -hmm. go back and settle inspiration. Yeah. Right.
2: (laughs) So back it up. Exactly.
1: (laughs) And same with inerrancy if we talk about certain uh, or sufficient, again, if we struggle with those terms, any of our listeners, I would say go back and settle inspiration. Yep. Um, and
2: these Yeah, I mean, it follows, I think, so much, it's that God, God had so worked in the lives of, you know, a variety of men from Moses, say, 1500 BC, all the way down to the uh, Revelator John in, you know, the 80s or 90s AD, you know, fifteen hundred years of writing scripture. Surely he will, uh, if he if he's giving his word to men, uh, he will uh, make sure that the word that he gives is accurately his word. Um, thus, inerrancy, infallibility, etc. Um, and this, obviously, I mean, we we're not this is not on biblical exegesis, but or how to understand the relationship between human writing and divine inspiration. But the divine inspiration of scripture does not treat men like automatons. It's not dictating. No,
1: yeah. That's right, working through. That's why we love biblical theologians or biblical theology as a formal discipline. We want to know the theology of Peter or the theology of a Pauline theology of, I mean, God was working through Paul. So using all his humanity, but to write the very words of God. So we, there, there's a sense in which we can talk about the dual authorship, authorship of scripture, and yet there's ultimately one
2: author. Yeah, uh, uh, J.I. Packer uses the word concursive. Uh, Inspiration is mm. concursive. Helpful. Uh, human authors uh, with all of their different styles, but behind it all, the inspiring work of the spirit.
1: Hmm. Well, I wish we had more time, but yep. we must move on. I'm, I'm hearing Cal- Calvin in my head saying lucid brevity. So here we go. Uh, very briefly, I think, uh, our, section two of article one. If I put a word over this, this is simply the confession making clear what are the 66 books of the Bible. In other words, we're Protestants and we won't see what in this list of books. Well, we won't
2: see the Apocrypha, the... Uh, uh, you know, that's right. <laughs> in some ways, and I say this very hesitantly, the canon is still being battled about in the 16th century. I say that very hesitantly because essentially the canon is decided pretty well by the end of the 2nd century in what that document called the Muratorian Canon, which is, a sec- in my mm-hmm. mind, a 2nd century document. There's some scholars say it's a 4th century, but I, I think it has got all the hallmarks of the 2nd century. And uh, it pretty well draws up the entirety of the New Testament, lacking maybe three or four uh, books. Um, essentially, by by the end of the fourth century, uh, with the Car- Council of Carthage and this uh, Athanasius' uh, festal letter of 67, um, you have the exact shape of our Old and New Testaments delineated. But th- there had been the reading of the Apocrypha all through the medieval world. And so this was really a this was to affirm that whatever the pocap might be, helpful history, uh mm-hmm. they are not part of divine scripture. And not no, seen as not inspired.
1: You know so back so they don't bear the marks exactly. of inspiration, I guess might be one way to, to put it as far as the reformers. And for the sake of time, Michael, you see that that section too making clear, you know, the thirty-nine books of the old and the 27 of the new. And then in that section three, a about very the clear Apocrypha. statement that, uh, about yep. the Apocrypha. So what, having said it positively yep. and now
2: negatively saying, this this isn't the um, The uh, Second London Confession, interestingly enough, uh, makes a little change in the Old Testament listing. Uh, the uh, Westminster and the Savoy both say Song of Songs. And for some reason, and who knows why the uh uh second learning confession changes it to the song of solomon uh it's no big deal but it's intriguing that the westminster and the savoy call it the song of songs and the savoy uh the west the second line confession changes it to the song of solomon um it
1: yeah Yeah. what's the story behind that surely there's a story we don't have it but there's got to be yeah. a reason for that, I would think. Uh, well, and just to be clear for our listeners, Michael, I mean, the, the Apocrypha, we won't get in, won't get us derailed here, but these are intertestamental books, or right? I mean, these are the, about 200 BC to 400 AD. No, they're that, no, they're, they're, they're much earlier than even
2: 400 through, AD. Uh, they're all basically in place by the time of Christ.
1: Oh, I, yeah, but they were thought to be written during uh, that,
0: somewhere.
2: No, I, I was thinking I between think two hundred. I think they're all thought to be written BC. by the birth of Christ.
1: Oh, okay, so not. A, I see. I see.
2: But they're not all written afterwards. by. They're all. Um, none of them are in mm-hmm. Hebrew or Aramaic. They're all in Greek. And so, Palestinian Judaism, rabbinic Judaism in Palestine, did they did not recognize them as. Canonical, there's no indication our Lord recognized them as canonical, but they were recognized as canonical by diaspora Jewish synagogues in say um Greece um, or in Egypt. And probably most of them have their origin among um Greek-speaking Jewish communities uh, in Egypt. And so that's another factor here. Hmm. There is no Hebrew original behind any of these books. They're all in Greek.
1: All in Greek. Are you hearing anything from our younger students about an no. intrigue with the Apocrypha? Some have said, no. okay, so you're not seeing many I mean, interest
2: I, in that? Yeah, nor I mean, I think, um, I, uh, what was, I mean, what, one of the things I, I take students through when I teach Latin is the Prayer of Manasseh, which is just a remarkable, could have been could have been written by, uh, 16th century reformer you know it's just very very mm. emphasis on the grace of god it's just a very rich prayer and i use it because number 1 because of its uh the latin is fairly simple and number 2 it's just just so edifying a text um but no i in fact i think you know the the, the apocrypha have suffered in protestant circles uh since probably since the 19th century mm. Uh, when they were basically taken out of our Bibles completely.
1: Okay. Well, very good. That as this this Protestant <laughs> is glad to hear that. It's good. Well, number four here's section four, and this really gets at you know the authority of of Holy Scripture is rooted in what or based in who? Well, upon God. So let me read it uh, just so our listeners can hear it. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed depends not upon the testimony of any man, now this is very important, or church, there you go, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God.
2: Yeah, the, sections four and up. five are basically responding to wh- why do we believe Scripture? And the Roman Catholic Church, one of the big debates uh, at the time of the Reformation was um, the reason why church traditions have to be obeyed is because, after all, it was the church created the canon. It was the church who decided that which books went into the canon, and uh, it did so on the basis of their you know the the heavenless this is chapter five of the confession the heavenliness of the matter the efficacy of the doctrine majesty of style etc and um all of these mm-hmm. external witnesses to the majesty and truth of god's word it was the church that recognized these and uh, both of these uh, sections section four and five are really uh picking up uh, john calvin's argument in the Institutes, Book 1, Section 7 through 9, which is that the, the God is himself a witness of the truth of his word and what uh, Calvin calls the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit uh, or the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And...
1: That's right, because ultimately, how do we see the scriptures as the inspired word of God? and the yeah. holy spirit reveals it that's that inward testimony I mean, this, this of the holy
2: spirit day. yeah exactly from which we this don't is still see a it. big issue today for us this is one that is i mean how do we mm-hmm. it, it, the charge against us is well you you're making a circular argument um right that may well be the case but it's still it's still an argument of truth i mean if i if i can, if I can pre- present a variety of evidences and we don't we don't ignore them uh, chapter five indicates we, we we pay attention to the, the mm-hmm. fact that prophecies are fulfilled That's in right. the new testament there is a harmoni. we can harmonize scripture um etc calvin himself in book uh, the institutes one seven and one nine argued for the the internal witness of the spirit to the truth of God's Word. But then in 1.8, he gave up a host of reasons why I believe the Word of God to be the Word of God. But ultimately, it's the Spirit who convinces me. And that's still a very, I mean, I had a conversation with a young man just recently, you know, how do I know that the canon is the Word of God? And uh, ultimately, it comes down to this, well, because of the Spirit, he must bear witness with your spirit that's right now when i pick up this word i'm not just reading another book but i'm reading the very words of god
1: i remember michael pastoring uh back in washington state and had a gentleman uh, an older gentleman uh at that time older than me uh coming visiting and he asked to get coffee and i said i'd love to get coffee with you let's do it and And he struggled with this very topic. He's talked about it a little differently than we are. But at the end of the day, I could discern as a pastor, I was listening to his heart and I could hear him say, at the end of the day, I I just can't believe that this thing you call the Bible is the word of God. I've grown up in the church. I hear this all the time. And he says, so pastor, what, what, what should I do? And I did exactly what the confession has taught me to do. I talked a little bit about the excellency of all its parts, the consent of the whole, I mean, these things. But I said to this gentleman, uh, his name is Jerry. I said, Jerry, here's what I want you. I'm going to challenge you to do this. Read Mark. I picked the Gospel of Mark. Just read the scriptures Mm -hmm. and let them win you over. I go, You so rather than point him to an argument or try to do apologetics, my apologetic, if you will, Mm -hmm. was getting him into the word so that the Holy Spirit who works through the word could testify to his spirit yeah. that this is the word of God. And, and I hope our, you know, if you're a pastor out there listening, um, that that's, I think a very sound approach to get somebody to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, in the scriptures, let the Holy Spirit do what he does testify through. Yeah. The I mean, word for instance, you know, I've, I've
2: had conversations with Muslims over the years, um, you know about the relationship of Christ to Muhammad the Quran and the Gospels and um, one of the things I often point to just just read this read the Gospels and listen to what they're saying about Jesus
0: right.
2: and um i mean i've I know of true stories of people who've read the genealogy of Jesus in mark Matthew one and of being converted through that
1: I believe it Yeah. And isn't that a good reminder to us, Michael? I mean, what we do, this is ultimately spiritual work. I mean, we can have these wonderful arguments and we do and we read theology and we're commending a confession here. But at the end of the day, the confession recognizes that we as ministers of the gospel are dealing in spiritual matters. So it's simply
2: a matter of rational argumentation by which I can uh, batter down somebody else's Mm -hmm. arguments and reduce them to rubble. But the the spirit must do that inner work right. of opening a person's eyes to the reality of Scripture. Yeah,
1: didn't our yeah. hearts burn within us? Remember, I mean that's the spirit was working through uh, Jesus's teaching of the old te- what we call the Old Testament, I mean the Hebrew Scriptures, and they recalled, didn't our hearts burn within us as He was teaching? It's also very I important for us, I think,
2: as Christians, when we come to Scripture. And we're reading, say, you know, some Old Testament passages which might be difficult, like say the vow of Jephthah, and um, or the passage where um, uh, Moses uh, circumcises his two sons, and um, other texts, uh, some of the 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 commands of Israel to destroy the inhabitants of Canaan, and um, we have to approach scripture as scripture and not with a hermeneutic of suspicion, and mistrust. Mm-hmm. And I think what has helped me over the years is to realize right. um, there are parts of the word of God I, I just, I don't understand and I still don't understand, but they're God's word and in time they will be explained. Well,
1: well you, w- I always feel like I'm in good yeah. company yeah, yeah, when Peter, you know, Peter says, you know, those Paul's some and some of those things he says, Paul, they're hard to understand, yeah. as are the other you know, people twist them, you know, like they do the other scriptures. I'm like, Peter, I appreciate that word because, you know, there's some things in Paul that are hard to understand, you know, but we're also echoing you are, Michael, aren't we? The, yep. the confession here in section seven of article one it says all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor like clear unto all. Yet, and then it goes on, uh, the clarity of Scripture to be sure, but some things aren't as clear as others. So we use the analogy of faith or we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Yep, exactly. Scripture is its own interpreter. Um, so we'll interpret uh, the less clear in view of the more clear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I hope I, that's accurate to say it that way. All under the umbrella of clear. Pers- perspicuity of scripture. Well, and one one section we got to get to, Michael, in, in the time we have is this section six. It's very dear to me right now. I'm just finishing up a chapter in a book I'm writing on, and this chapter has to do with the sufficiency of scripture. And what I'm doing in this work of pastoral theology is trying to exhort uh, pastors to minister out of the sufficiency of the word. word in other words, it is sufficient. And Here's part of that section six. It says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, there's more to it, but I'll stop there, Michael, and just Uh, you know, be amazed with you sufficient. The scriptures, it it says everything necessary for his own glory, God's own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. That kind of covers everything. (laughs) So the scriptures are sufficient for us to glorify God and live Mm -hmm. uh, a godly life. And how heartening is that, not only for the individual Christian, just I can search the scriptures for wisdom, for everything I need. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness, right? Through his precious promises. So 2 Peter 1, 3 and following. But but as pastors, so a lot of people listening to our podcast are pastors, they can rely on the, on the word. They, they need to preach and teach the word. That's one of the great takeaways, I think, of this section six, it is sufficient. So we don't need all the vaudeville acts and the props and, and all the things we might think we need to lean into. We have the sufficient scripture. Yeah, I
2: think this um, is a reminder to us that the, of the riches that we have in various other books and etc. Uh, that have come down to us. But if we have none of, none of them, we could, and, but yet have scripture, we could still live lives that honor God, uh, that are lives that lead to salvation and that are rich in faith. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 an important affirmation, I think, in our day. Um, this doesn't mean, I don't think this means that, therefore, we embrace yeah. a view of what we call maybe nuda scriptura, um, where, you know, uh, I don't need to listen to anything else. I'm a historian, Uh, so I'm reading the first, doing (laughs) work in the first century, um, say, in biblical history. Uh, Of course, I read, you know, Tacitus and Suetonius and Pliny to find out something of the context. But if I didn't have access to those books, I would still have sufficient to understand what was going on in the first century as it relates to my salvation, my faith and my christian life and how to bring god glory so we're not by sola scriptura doesn't mean nuda Mm -hmm. scriptura uh, but it does nonetheless uh, affirm that in the scriptures we have all that is necessary to live a life that honors god and issues in the beatific vision
1: I mean, after yeah. all, we both write books exactly. that we want people to read, right? <laughs> so oh. they're, they're not inspired. Uh, they're, of a, they're of a different uh, quality. I mean, I, I think that's right. There's a, a qualitative difference between anything mere man writes and, and the inspired scriptures. And those are, those are what's sufficient ultimately for salvation. And then, of course, the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling um, the word of God. So, uh, no, I, I want to affirm that too, Michael, that's, that's a good word. Um, especially Mm -hmm. as both trained historians here, we're mining, uh, a lot of sources and the evidence and looking at and reading. And, and there's such value in that. I remember briefly one, one story, I have a dear friend, uh, back West and, and he's a reader, an avid reader, but he's always looking for kind of the latest, like, what's the thing I should be reading? And and I did this on purpose, not too long ago. It was probably within the last year. Uh, the customary question: So, Mike, what are you reading? You know, he knows I'm a professor, so I read a lot for a living. And so, like, what's the latest book? And and I I, I really meant this, but I did just pause and I said, you know, brother, um, I'm really more and more 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 than ever amazed at Paul right now. I'm really I'm really reading Paul, and and I was so struck by. I was doing some work in Galatians at that time. And I was just so amazed at, I guess, Mm -hmm. according to the confession, the heavenliness of the scriptures and as much other reading as I do, which like you is a a lot, the older I get, and here I am at 50 now, and I'm realizing there's such a beauty and a power to the scriptures that Paul's like one of my favorite authors, right? (laughs) So people say, who's your favorite author? I'm like, Paul, his 13 letters, uh, with every passing year, amaze me more and more. But that's saying something about Scripture, not saying something negative about other reading or other writings. But it's saying something about about the sufficient Word. I think with each passing year, yeah, man. it becomes yeah. more and more sufficient to me, you know. So, well, I, I, we've we've got one more. Let's let's end where. Article 1 ends, Michael, and here it is. Let me read section 10, and maybe we can have some just closing words on this. What a, what a crescendos to this glorious statement. The supreme judge, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits, are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the holy scripture delivered by the spirit into which scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. So a, a pointer again, back to sufficiency, but the ultimate authority is scripture.
0: Beads podcast is in partnership with H and publishing of a formed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ, the publication of Church History, Biblical Spirituality, Christian Living, and Theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.